Well, this morning we're dropping into the middle of a sermon. Jesus has just spent an entire night in prayer on a mountainside, and he calls his disciples to himself. He chooses 12 as apostles or as sent ones among the many disciples that were following him at that time. And and we could say that the nation of Israel, if you remember, began uh, officially after Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the law, with the commands. And do you remember what happened back in Exodus, around 19 and 20? Israel couldn't even approach the mountain that he had come down from. God's presence was there, and and they, they couldn't even touch the mountainside. Well, here, Jesus is delivering a sermon after selecting his 12 apostles, which really is, is a reflection of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he's, he's selected the 12. The people are gathered around a mountainside, and Jesus is bringing instruction. Only as Jesus delivers this instruction, they're drawing near to him. They're able to touch him. Let's read in chapter 6 of Luke, verse 17. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. What's Jesus doing here? He's establishing a new community, a new Israel. He's appointed the twelve. He's addressing his disciples, those who are following him, and he is establishing a new community. And so he begins his sermon in verse 20 by contrasting two types of people, those who are blessed because they identify with Jesus and his proclamation of the kingdom, and and, and they're hoping for what is promised. But they're contrasted with those who have everything they need here and now, or so they think. They're not hoping in the promises of God. They have not identified with Jesus, and they're under judgment. But as I said, we're dropping into the middle of this sermon, and so we're going to pick up after that in verse 27. So he's just made this this contrast between those who are looking to Jesus and hoping in what is to come, hoping in what's promised, looking to the kingdom, and they're contrasted with those who are not. And then he says this in verse 27. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, 
and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. We'll stop there. What do we have here? We have marching orders. We have directions to his disciples. We have instructions from King Jesus. This is a new way of life for a new community. That's what we have here. Marching orders from King Jesus. This command to love. He says in verse 27, but I tell you who hear me. In other words, he's saying to you who are paying attention right now, who are listening and who desire to obey. Well, the same is true then as it is now. This is for those who are paying attention to Jesus' words, who are actually listening, who are leaning in and desire to obey what he's about to say. And then he goes on to say, love your enemies, do good to them. And Jesus doesn't urge his disciples to love. He doesn't encourage his disciples to love. He commands them to love. He commands them. It's the non-negotiable centerpiece of those who follow him. It's the non-negotiable centerpiece of those who belong to this new community that he's gathering around himself. It's the non-negotiable centerpiece of the church. It's not an optional add-on for them. It's not an optional add-on for you and I. He isn't asking if this is all right with us. Love your enemies. Every time I read this, I'm like, really? Love your enemies? I mean, a number of times I've been, I've been like, hey, Val, ch- check this out. I'm doing my devotions. I just pull her aside. I'm like, read this. This is what we believe. C- can you believe this? <laughs> I feel like a dazed boxer sometimes when I read the words of Jesus. Now imagine what it would have felt to the original hearers, a people living in occupied territory under Roman rule. Love your enemies. What? How can Jesus command us to love? We can't take this literally, can we? Isn't this just a figure of speech? I mean, unless I I feel something towards someone, I can't love them, can I? It just doesn't seem very practical now, does it? I can't even love those I say I love. How am I going to love those who insult me and slander me and hurt me or hurt those that I love? I've tried. I don't seem to be very good at it. Is there another way? There is no other way. There's no other way. The command to love is given to those who follow Jesus then and now. The command to love your enemy is given to us today. And it is direct, and it is personal, and it is invasive. So do you feel the impossibility of this command? How ridiculous and terribly impractical it is? Do you feel the weight of it? Do you feel helpless in the face of it? I hope you do. I hope that you're not just sitting back. I'd be worried if you were just sitting back, arms crossed, thinking, I got this. Love my enemies? Check. Every day, man. Got it. Easy. I'd be worried for you if that was your response. I want you to feel the weight of it. I want you to feel helpless in the face of it. What does Jesus mean by enemies? 
We've got to ask that question. Well, we can look in, in the sermon, in the beginning of his sermon, in verse 22, he says, Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. He's saying, listen, for those who are looking to the kingdom of God, for those who are following my rule, for those who are expecting and anticipating what God has promised, you will be persecuted. For those who, on account of my name, are persecuted, you're blessed. So, are your enemies those who persecute you? Yes. But not only those who persecute you. Jesus helps bring definition, really clear definition to who our enemy is. He says it. Later in verse 27, he says, I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Who's your enemy? Your enemy, your enemies, and he assumes you have some, are those who hate you, are those who curse you, and those who mistreat you. And now many live today with the mindset is, hey, I I love you. I love you, bro, till you cross me, you know, till you cross that line, till you hurt me or hurt my family. An enemy always takes something from us, always. Could be stuff. Most of the time, it's our dignity, it's respect, it's our pride. And now we're being told by Jesus, by King Jesus, to give. Not to get back, but to give. To give to those who have taken. To bless. This is speaking of peace, of wholeness. To want what's good for them. To bring the one who hurt us to God in prayer. To pray for them. Everything in us, if we're honest with ourselves this morning, shrinks back from this, away from this. this but this is actually how the new community is called to live. For those who are following the rule of Christ, for those who are bowing their life to King Jesus, he's saying, this is how you're called to live. This is new community life. This is more than a movement. It's life in the kingdom. This is what life in the kingdom looks like. This love he's calling us to isn't a warm, fuzzy feeling. Aren't you relieved? Because I don't have a lot of warm, fuzzy feelings for those who hate me. It is action. It's a way of life. It's a, it's a way of being. It's active care for others. And it often comes with feelings. It often does. But even if you don't have those feelings, it can produce feelings. If you're struggling with somebody, if there's a family member or a friend who functions as an enemy, it, it could be in your very household. Husband and wife could be living as enemies. When you step out and pray for them in private, and bless them, even if they're cursing you, you start to pray for them, what happens? You actually, you start to love them. Love starts to well up in your heart where it just, it wasn't before. It can produce feelings. But Jesus isn't asking us to express some kind of sappy sentimentality uh, towards those who persecute us or hurt us. And he's certainly not asking us to approve of our enemy's actions. No, he is not asking us to approve of our enemy's actions. What they did or what they're doing to us is wrong, but, but that wrong, 
though it appears to be this insurmountable barrier to love, he's saying it's not. That wrong done to you is not a barrier. No barrier is too big. Not what they've done, not what they're doing, not our struggle with the command or our fear of what it's going to require or or the difficulty in understanding it or the hurt we feel, the legitimate hurt and pain and offense we have. None of that is too big for God's love to break through. It, It just isn't. And so Jesus illustrates from things we value most, our bodies and our possessions. Let's check it out. Look at verse 29. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. He's talking about this with my kids. He's not talking about the other other cheek, okay? No, he's not. Though I know that's what you want to turn to him, but that's not what he's talking about. Let's just get that out of the way. The other cheek, not the other other cheek. The other cheek, is this talking about an insult, which can feel like a backhand? Is this talking about a slap on the cheek, which would have been given to to those who spoke heresy? Or is this a punch in the jaw? What's going on here? Here's what we know. It is physical, it involves the face, and it's insulting. Natural reaction? Strike back. Or run away. If someone pops me in the jaw, depends on how big he is. Jesus is speaking about a lifestyle. Don't seek revenge. Be ready, if need be, to accept another blow. Be ready, if need be, to receive another insult. Don't pay back wrong for wrong or evil with evil. This is about a posture of humility that those who follow Jesus are to exhibit in the, in the face of opposition. In the midst of misunderstanding and persecution. You know as well as I do that every good action movie involves a guy seeking revenge on his enemies. And we cheer him on, don't we? Oh, we want justice. The law's not enough, man. You go after him yourself. We want it bad. The call to turn the other cheek, though, is a call to faith. It's, it, it's a call to extraordinary trust in Jesus. I think of the early church when I think of what it means to turn the other cheek. Think of the early church, how they continued to preach the gospel even to those who rejected them. But they didn't just reject them. They preached the gospel to those who hated them, to those who imprisoned them, to those who killed some who were among them. Notice when even Stephen, the first martyr of the early church, where they were throwing rocks at him, he didn't pick up rocks and throw them back. They never fought back. They never fought back. When they started to beat Paul down, I mean, Paul wasn't swinging back. He didn't call Timothy in and Silas. and Boys, come on, let's, let's do this. We preached, but, you know, they're getting tough. They're getting rough. Let's, let's rumble here. No, that's not how they rolled. They didn't pay back evil with evil. They, they overcame evil with good. Remember Acts 16, one of the most beautiful stories in Acts, in my opinion, where Paul and Silas are imprisoned 
I mean, their backs are ripped open, they're beat, and now they're locked in the inner cell of this prison. And what are they doing at the midnight hour? They're singing songs. They're singing hymns. They're praying in the deep darkness of a stinky cell, locked up, misunderstood, beaten. The centurion who beat them after the earthquake comes and their chains are released, he's about to kill himself. And they say, no, don't kill yourself. The very one who imprisoned them, the very one who probably participated in the lashes that were laid on their back is the one they preached the gospel to and that evening was baptized, he and his family. And so in the waters that they baptized him, they were able to wash their wounds. I wonder how I would have responded. Earthquake comes, my chains are released, I'm out. That centurion who beat me, He's about to run himself through with a sword. Go ahead, man. I want out of this cell. Not the early church. Love your enemy. It's extraordinary. There's always going to be risk associated with this kind of love and sacrifice, isn't there? There's risk associated with this. God sees, God hears. He cares. I want to live my life quorum Deo. It's a Latin phrase, which means before the face of God. I want to live each day of my life mindful that he sees, that he hears, that he knows, that everything I do is before his face, before his watching uh, gaze. He, it not only holds me accountable to my actions, but I know because he's just and he's good that all the wrong done to me is not going unnoticed and that vengeance belongs to him. Unfortunately, we can take on a role that isn't ours, though. We can demand our perceived rights. But The question I have for us today is, are we willing to be rejected? Are we willing to be misunderstood? Are we willing to be insulted and then turn the other cheek and receive it again? Are we going to overcome evil with good? Can you take it? Is your faith big enough to take it? Is your faith big enough to be misunderstood, to be rejected? Let's keep going. He's talking about our bodies, and now he talks about our belongings, our clothes. Verse 29. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other. If someone takes your cloak, don't stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. All right, what's going on here? Your cloak, this is your outer covering, your outer garment, your tunic. This is the the shirt off your back. This is the, the clothing that's closest to the skin. Here's the question. Is is what he's saying here due to theft? If someone takes your cloak, don't don't stop them from taking your tunic. Is this due to robbery? Is this a, a court action? Some might say this is a court action. If 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 someone needs a cloak or I mean, this, this would have protected them from the, the cold weather at, at, at night. Here's what I know. This is material possessions. And the natural reaction to someone taking what belongs to me is, I want it back. I'm getting it back. You're darn right I'm getting it back. That's mine. I paid for it. But it's the heart. It's the spirit of what's said here that we need to capture. A readiness, a posture to give 
and to give and to, and to give and to give. So where turning the other cheek was a posture of humility, here, giving of our clothing, our cloak, or our tunic, is, it's a posture of radical sacrifice, sacrificial giving. This isn't about passivity. This isn't about indifference. This isn't about weakness. Are you willing to be vulnerable and practice radical self-sacrifice? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. And it requires the same thing that turning the other cheek requires, faith. It requires complete reliance on God. And it sounds a lot like taking up your cross and following Jesus. Because taking up your cross requires dying to self. It involves pain. It involves suffering. Are we willing? Is our faith big enough? You know, there's a time that we shouldn't give our possessions. There is. There is a time that in love, we should not give our possessions. Gentleman was sitting outside of Starbucks a couple weeks ago. If you live in St. I mean, you're in St. Pete, you're going to run into guys who are asking you for money. I, I often don't give cash. I don't, I don't carry cash. That's convenient, right? However, this gentleman asks for money. He's sitting uh, on the sidewalk. I, I, I had a conversation with him. I said, hey, man, I... I don't give cash. I don't have cash. I'll gladly buy you a sandwich. Right? He goes, well, I don't like the food they have here. All right? And he, he, we kept talking. I was like, well, you know, what about the corner store right here? No, I want to I get a, a, a sandwich up the street when that place opens. Come on, $3. As we kept talking, he goes, man, I don't, I don't buy crack all the time with money. But sometimes... Appreciate your honesty, man, but I'm still not giving you any money. If, if there's someone who's under the influence and I can smell it and I can see they're staggering and they ask for money, I don't give them money. What's directing my decision? What's informing my decision? Love. Love. We shouldn't hold back out of our love for stuff and for the five bucks in our wallet. No. Our wallets don't decide if we give or not. Love must decide. Love must decide. Am I willing to give? Am I willing to be vulnerable? Am I willing to give up what I have? Will I show respect? Will I treat this person with dignity? This is a person I'm speaking with. Yes, he's sitting on the sidewalk asking for $3, but he's a man with dignity and worth and value. Am I showing that to him? Am I showing him love? Am I going to take time to answer his question, or am I going to give him the hand? I could give you so many examples of times where I felt taken advantage of. Valerie makes fun of me for this. <laughs> she says I'm a softie. She says I, you know, I'll tell her the story that, you know, someone told me on the street. She's like, really? You believe that? <laughs> yeah. I don't know what they're going to do with that money, but I'm giving it to the Lord, as unto the Lord. Eugene Peterson writes, Sin reduces people around us to roles or objects so we can use them or manipulate them or condescendingly help them. They are depersonalized so we don't have to be relational with them. 
Boy, that's dangerous. I don't want to just view people around me as, as objects. I don't want to depersonalize anyone. Love is relational or it's nothing. Verse 31. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This is the heart of it all up to this point. This is a summary of what Jesus has been saying. Now, we know it as the golden rule, don't we? It should be a value to us that, that governs our lives. It, it should control our actions. Everything we do, everything we say should be filtered through it. It should be that important to us. It's often quoted alone. I usually use it on my kids after they treat their bro poorly. Hey, do to others as, as you would want do, done to you, man. What are you doing? You want to treat him the way you want to be treated. So we just, we throw that around a lot. It's easy to say it to someone else. It's easy to say it after the fact, after something's been done to you. Maybe you responded poorly. It's easy to say it when we're being treated with kindness. And Jesus knows all that, so he asks a series of questions. Point number two, he's telling us to go further still. This is the question of love. Pick up in verse 32. Let's read it again. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners. Even sinners. Now, who? we're all sinners. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about those who are not looking to him, who are not part of those who by faith are, tr- are trusting in God, looking to the kingdom of God. Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. So when you think you've, you've taken it far enough, Jesus is saying, take it further still. You think you're loving enough? Go, go further still. You've only just begun. So these three questions are really illustrations for us. And he gives three responses, and they all are, are all about the same point. What's he saying? What's the point? Reciprocity is not enough. What's that mean? Doing good in order to receive good in return is not enough. Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's not enough. Even sinners do that. If that's how you love, then you've set boundaries on love. And you need to stop that. Don't do that. Jesus' love doesn't set these kind of boundaries. Jesus' love knows no bounds. Stop being selective with your love, is what he's saying. It's It's not enough to love those who love you back. Invite those into your house who can't invite you into theirs. Give to those who can't give you something in return. The questions, they challenge us not to settle for a love that looks like the world's love. Don't settle for a love that isn't mind blowing. Don't settle for a love that causes you to wonder, what's that guy doing? Why is he loving that way? Why is he giving that way? That seems weird. That seems like not very responsible. Don't settle for a love unless it kind of causes you to wonder, am I being responsible? (laughs) Don't settle for a love that looks like the love of this world. What good is that, Jesus is saying? What difference is that going to make? It won't stand out. It won't be vibrant. It won't be that colorful, extravagant, transforming love that I'm calling you to. A love that in the face of betrayal and pain and misunderstanding stands firm. 
That's the kind of love that Jesus is calling us to. It's not easy. But it is powerful. These are marching orders from King Jesus. These are instructions to his disciples. Jude recently recommended a book to me. It's A Wrinkle in Time. Anybody read that? I loved it. Like, buddy, thank you. I just devoured that book. It's on my level, you know, my reading level. (laughs) Fifth grade. It's this uh, wonderful story. It's this adventure, kind of C.S. Lewis type adventure where... I forget all the names. I think Meg is her, the main character. And she, she has got to face evil. The very end of this book, she's facing evil incarnate, which is basically this big brain. It's like this gross brain that controls everything around it and is trying to bring her under its control. And it's already possessed her brother. She's gone back to this planet to free her brother. And, and these angelic beings told her she has these tools and these weapons but she doesn't know what those weapons are. She's trying to discover it. It's a spoiler alert. This is a spoiler alert right now. All right? So if you want to just plug your ears. <laughs> How is she going to win her brother back who's possessed by this it? It's called it, this, this evil force. How is she going to win him back? What does she have that it doesn't have, that evil doesn't have? Love. It's a powerful, powerful moment in the book where she declares her love for her brother again and again. She calls him by name. I forget his name. (laughs) Really affected me. (laughs) She calls him by name, and he starts to kind of come out of this possession, and he, he comes to his senses, and she keeps calling him by name and declaring her love. He had treated her so poorly He had rejected her. He had become an enemy. And what she had that evil didn't have was love. You know, we love the idea of love. Everyone knows its power, at least in part. And everyone can see that it produces something, even if a poor reflection in our world. I mean, think about it. The best songs, the best movie plot lines, uh, the best books involve love. John Lennon imagined a utopian world, however, without God. I want us to imagine a world. I want us to imagine a world or a life lived under God's loving rule, where we who have received love give it away so radically, so generously, so courageously that people around us actually see a difference. There's something different. Why? What's the reason to love this way? That leads us to our final point. Loving this way, loving our enemy is an identity marker among other identity markers. It's the reason we love. Verse 35. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. I'm still in my mind saying, really, Jesus? It's okay. It's okay to wrestle with it as you read it again and again and again. Really? This is what you've asked me to do? This is hard. He knows. He's given you his spirit. He's present with you. 
He'll give you the strength to love those who don't love you. And he'll give me the strength to do the same. Then your reward, when you do this, then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because, here's why, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. So we're ending the sermon here today where we need to begin. This is the starting place if we're to love the way Jesus commands us to love. If we're determined to make this way of life our own, because that's what he's laying out to this new community that's gathered on the mountainside after appointing his 12. This new Israel, this new people. What he's laying out is this new way of life to live in the kingdom. You're going to follow the king, which the king is proclaiming. The kingdom of God is at hand. What's he saying? I'm the king. Live under my rule. It's a good rule. It's a loving rule. It's what you were made for. And this is what it looks like. It's radical. It's radical. Are you determined to make this way of life your own? Well, this is the starting place. Right here. And he says, basically, you need to be this. You need to love this way. Love your enemies because that's what God is like. I mean, that's what God has done. He's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. That's what God is. He's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And we're like looking around, well, where's the wicked? Huh? Where? Where's the, ungra- where's the ungrateful? Look with me in Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 1. Be imitators of God. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of, let's say it together, live a life of just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Imitate that way of life. Jesus washed the feet of his betrayer. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem, a city that would reject him, crucify him. They'd go on to strike the cheek of Jesus. They'd go on to rip off his clothes. He prayed for his enemies while he hung there naked on the cross. Look at Romans. Romans chapter 5. You see, at just the right time, verse 6, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God? Oh, you see, God, he demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified, declared right in his eyes through his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having now been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? We were his enemies, but we've been reconciled through the death of Jesus, through his shed blood. 
This is the reason we love. This is our motive. This is our starting place. Have we forgotten the love that we've been shown? Have we moved away from it? Have we forgotten how absolutely mind-blowing, how radical this love is? Where have we placed boundaries on our love towards others? Where have we placed limits saying, this far and no more? No, you've gone too far. I can't love you. You see, we learn how to love by being loved. And we've been loved by a perfect love. What we have in this sermon on a mount, on a level plain, on the side of a mountain, what we have here is love incarnate. God is love. So the God of love is standing before us, commanding us to love. Love incarnate is calling us to love. And in doing so, he's inviting us in to participate in his divine character, to be who we're called to be, children of the living God who love in return, who don't retaliate, who don't pay back wrong for wrong. We don't don't fight evil with evil. No, no. Clinton read it earlier. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He so loved us. Because he so loved us, we can't move away from that. If we move away from that, we will not love others. Jesus spoke of what he knew. He spoke of this extravagant love and generosity that the Father showed him. And now he's calling us to live in response to extravagant love and generosity. He's calling us to be the sons, the daughters that we are of the Most High. This is the way we demonstrate who we are. This is the way we demonstrate we belong to Jesus. This is the way we reflect the Father's character, by loving our enemies. Now, there's reward in this. We see it in verse 38. We'll get to that. But the motive, the reason is because God the Father is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. That's the reason. That's the motive. That's where we get the strength to do what he's calling us to do. Verse 37. Do not judge. You will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. So when we're tempted to judge, we need to ask this, and we will be tempted to judge. We will be tempted to to just write someone off. When, when, When we're tempted to do that, we need to ask, what does mercy look like? What have I been shown? Mercy. So what what does mercy look like now towards this person that I'm tempted to judge? When we're tempted to condemn, we need to ask, what does mercy look like? When we're tempted to walk in unforgiveness, this animosity and bitterness, and we think it's our right to hold it against somebody, we need to ask, what does mercy look like? Again, in expressing forgiveness towards wrong done to you, you are not saying what they did was right. But here's what you're doing. You're not allowing them to hold you captive and and for the enemy to hold you captive to unforgiveness and bitterness and rage and malice. No way. Forgiveness says this, what you did was wrong, but I'm entrusting all of this to the one who judges justly, to the one who sees and knows and cares and acts and who will one day make all things right. So we get this illustration now in closing from the marketplace. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. 
What's he talking about? In order to get this maximum amount of grain in the marketplace, the contents would be pressed down and shaken together. And if the one you're purchasing the grain from is generous, the grain would overflow the container and fall into the the crevices of your garment, your pockets. This is an overflow, a running over. This is about generosity. Listen, I grew up in a a group of churches that, that would pull this verse out and use it and talk about money. And that is a gross distortion. This is bigger than money. It's about love. It's about a love so ridiculous, so generous, so shocking, so full of life. It's going to be hard to grasp, but it's going to come back to us as we give it. God loved us even when we were his enemies. And so what that means is he's going to be with us when we step out to love others, when we step out to love our enemies. He loved us when we were enemies. He's going to be with us when we step out to love our enemy. Listen, the command to love, the command to love our enemy is a non-negotiable centerpiece of the new community, of the church of the living God. And when we start to love this way, when we start to sacrifice our lives, when we start to give this way, when we turn the other cheek, when we, 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 just, we let people have what they want and, and take from us, and so much so it, it, it can at times feel like we're being taken advantage of, but we're not going to fight wrong with wrong or evil with evil. We're going to love in return. When we start to love this way, by faith, what's happening? The character of the living God is being shown through us, and you watch what love will do. Do not underestimate the power of this kind of love. It transforms the world. It will transform our relationships. Now, you might be in a place where you're like, man, I don't have faith for this kind of love. God can take care of that. That's not too big for God. Maybe you need to start by being humbled by his love for you. That's hard to grasp. Really believing that, yes, he loves you. He sent his son to die for you, to reconcile you to himself and have a living relationship with him. That's what he did for you. And I know that's hard to believe. It seems scandalous. It seems ridiculous. What? For for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, for those who have been forgiven their sin, if we move away from that, if we move away from understanding his love for us, we will not love this way. We won't love our enemies. We can't move away from a clear view of his love for us. Do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes to see his love for you again and again. I want to close by reading Romans chapter 12 and 13. I want you to see how the early church thought and talked and encouraged one another and how it's rooted in the words of Christ. Romans chapter 12, I pray this a lot for us as a church. Love must be sincere, verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. 
Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Oh, that sounds familiar. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. But be, be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, even on Facebook. No, that's, that's not there. It should be there for us. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Chapter 13, verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Church, the hour has come for Gulf Coast Community Church to wake up from its slumber. Now, I'm not coming down on you by saying that. And Paul wasn't coming down on the Romans for saying this. We need to be stirred up. We need to wake up from uh, the temptation to fall asleep to the radical grace of God in Christ Jesus. Wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissensions and jealousy. Interesting what he's pointing out to the Romans, not to practice, which would have been culturally acceptable. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Wow. A lot of commands there, Paul, rooted in the words of Christ. The command of love is the most beautiful, non-negotiable centerpiece of the new community. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us. We need your help. Help us to love the way you've called us to love and to believe that, Lord, you see and know that you care, that you will act, that you are just. Help us to live sacrificially. Help us to practice generosity and love so much so that we, we might and others might mistake it as foolish behavior. So much so it'll look absurd to some. Oh, but Father, help us to, to love our enemies. We all have them. We all have people who do not like us who treat us poorly, oh God, please help us to love them in return. In Jesus' name, amen.